relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Going deeper on the big issues that matter to you. This is your exclusive podcast, America First, one-on-one, with me, Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. And so it is with great sadness that I now criticize one of them. Because I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege a huge privilege to be recognized by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran, it's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. Truly unprecedented from the floor of the Houses of Parliament, an individual, full disclosure, who served in the same unit I served in in the British Territorial Army, the Intelligence Corps, who happens to be the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, Colonel Tugendhat, I think for the first time ever in the British-U.S. relations, calling in contempt a sitting commander. Commander-in-Chief, the current incumbent of the White House, Joe Biden. How did we arrive here and what is to be done? We have a very, very special guest with us today for America First one-on-one, an individual who I've been following for years. He just popped up on a fabulous podcast in the UK by my buddies, Trigonometry. Colonel Richard Kemp, welcome to America First one-on-one. Thank you, Seb. It's a real pleasure to be with you, to join you from the other side of the Atlantic tonight. Yes, uh, you are a troublemaker par excellence, and that's what we love here on America First. So for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, why not follow this man right now? He has a, a Twitter account that is a must-follow. It is simply Colonel, C-O-L, Colonel Richard Kemp. He has an SA-80 bayonet at the top. I don't know why. It's a garbage bayonet. Looked good. Looks cool, but it's not a very good bayonet. We can discuss that later. Uh, for those who are not familiar with you, your work, your background, we're broadcasting across the nation th- uh, thousands, no, what am I, three million listeners, and then whoever many watch us on video. Tell us, who is Richard Kemp? Who did you serve with? And uh, what do you do right now? Well, I was an a, a, a infantry soldier in the British Army, um, which explains the bayonet, because the bayonet is the, the symbol of the British infantry, whether it's practically a great weapon or not. <laughs> it, it's got a fantastic history in which we tend to stick it into our enemies at every possible opportunity. But um, I served in the Royal Anglian Regiment, which is the finest regiment of the line in the British Army. And many occasions I served with US forces in countries as diverse as the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, the United States, many other countries. And uh, I always uh, had the, the highest possible respect for the US soldiers and Marines and the Air Force and Navy that I served with during my time. I was um, commander of British forces in Afghanistan back in 2003 at the early stages of the campaign. Uh, And after that, I um, 
I was uh, in charge of the international terrorism intelligence assessment in the Prime Minister's office, the Cabinet office in, in London. And since then, I've basically been working pretty much for myself. I've been involved with corporate security. I do some consultancy work and I do quite a bit of uh, writing and uh, media commentary, among other things. And he is a very, very outspoken individual. That's what we love here. Follow him, richard-kemp.com. That's richard-kemp.com. Let's dive straight in. Uh, the man who sadly bears the title President of the United States uh, in his speech after the surrender of Kabul called it, quote, the best decision. It was the right decision. You fought in theater with U.S. troops. Your reaction to that description of the fall of Kabul? It was the worst decision. It was the wrong decision. And not only was it the wrong decision, it was very badly executed. Uh, the reason it was a wrong decision was because we were there for one reason. We weren't there to turn Afghanistan into Surrey or to uh, Massachusetts or wherever it might be that you're thinking of. We were there to, nor whether we, we were there to give uh, democracy to Afghanistan or, or equal rights for all. We were there to fight terrorism. That was our mission to, first of all, to eliminate al-Qaeda and uh, the Taliban, who carried out the most uh, horrific terrorist attack in the history of the world, which killed actually more Britons in 9-11 than had been killed in any other terrorist attack before or since. So we had a, a, a you know, we had a, a big uh, dog in the fight. Um, and, uh, and, that, and the reason we were there was, first of all, to clear them out and then to ensure that ta uh, Afghanistan didn't again become a hub for terrorism from which our countries in the West could be attacked. That was the purpose. That purpose has not changed. The threat remains. It's probably greater today than it was in 2001. So we should not have come out. We should have remained in Afghanistan. We should have kept at least the number of forces that were there before Biden commenced his withdrawal. And probably we should have put at least a few more in to, to, to ensure we could conduct our mission effectively. We certainly shouldn't have pulled out entirely. But once the decision was taken to pull out, it was taken to pull out wrongly, we should not have done it in the way we did it. First of all, we didn't really give the Afghans long enough to get used to the idea. Even here in Britain, the Foreign Secretary and evidence he gave to the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, he said that even Britain didn't really believe America was going to pull out. And if we didn't believe it, you can be sure that the Afghan government didn't believe it. And so there wasn't long enough for them to reorientate themselves to prepare for a completely changed situation. And not only that, we did it at the height of the Taliban fighting season. We did it at the time where they're most powerful. If we'd waited until autumn or winter, that would have been a different picture. We would not have seen the, 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 the pictures we saw coming out of Kabul with, with British, American and other international forces withdrawing under fire, uh, running away effectively from, from a victorious Taliban. And finally, I think we should have uh, commenced the evacuation much earlier than we did, the serious evacuation uh, of, of our uh, citizens and people who depended upon us and who we depended upon during the campaign, mainly interpreters. That should have been begun the minute Biden decided to pull out. It wasn't. It was, it was kind of left because the intelligence assessment was that the, the forces and the government in Afghanistan would be able to hold on until the end of the year. And so we ended up in the most, I think, I, I would consider the most disastrous foreign policy and defence situation that the West has, has ever experienced since the Second World War. 
Let me uh, gingerly push back on, on what you said. You said the mission was a counterterrorism mission. I think that's what the mission was and should always have been. But at least from our perspective, and I say this as a former DOD civilian, as a strategist in the White House, what I witnessed under 20 years was inordinate mission creep. And talking to our guys at Bragg, talking to our service warfighters here, it was every every 10 months the mission changed. Instead of whacking AQ or removing the Taliban. It was building hospitals, trying to finish the ring road around Kabul that not even the Soviets managed to do. So uh, the mission, what you describe is what the mission should have been, but wasn't because of politicians who didn't understand. Do you concur? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it, it was the mission, but it wasn't really accepted as the mission. And, and you know, in Britain, we had a left-wing government for the majority of that campaign. And that left-wing government uh, was not really willing to explain to its supporters that we were trying to fight and kill our enemies in Afghanistan, which is exactly what we were trying to do. They wanted to put it across as, you know, as as rebuilding a country, as uh, creating human rights, er- eradicating drugs, etc. And in fact, to the extent that all, all laudable aims, all things we should have been trying to do, but that's not the reason we were there. We, we pretty, you know, There are plenty of other countries in the world that have these problems that that don't demand that British and American soldiers lose their lives to achieve them. That, that, that those were secondary issues. But even the you know the Defence Secretary John Reid, uh, at one point during the campaign, just before we deployed large number, increased number of forces from British Army into into Helmand Province, which was you know the most intensive fighting that our forces took part in, he said we're we're hoping to go there without a shot being fired, and it was the most it was probably the most intensive military campaign in terms of both combat and uh, people killed and wounded in action that we had experienced since probably since Korea, maybe even since the Second World War. Um, we are talking to Colonel Richard Kemp, former British commander in Afghanistan. You can follow him at richard-kemp.com. Also author, co-author of the book, Attack State Red, along with Chris Hughes. Please follow this man on Twitter as well. Check out his books. It's COL Richard Kemp on Twitter. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First live streaming. Don't forget, it's free. You can subscribe, rumble.com slash Seb Gorka. That's rumble.com slash S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A for all of our show segments, all of our interviews, as well as the special one-on-one podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. Just look for America First, My Name, and one-on-one for exclusive long-form interviews that the mainstream media will not provide to you because they want the sound bites. They want the clickbait. Here, we get to drill down on the big issues of the day with the people who know of what they speak. We are continuing our discussion with Richard Kemp here on America First One-on-One. Um, uh, Richard, if I if I may um, switch back to that unbelievable statement from uh, Tom Tugendhat, who, you know, full disclosure, I, I know him as well, not simply because we, we hail from the same British unit originally. Can you put that comment can you put his speech from the floor of the uh, Palace at Westminster into historic context and into the con- context of our special relationship between the United States and, and the UK? Are you and he outliers or has a, a very serious blow been dealt to the special relationship? 
Well, I would say one thing. I, I, I fully agree with um, with him on the issue that he mentioned in the clip you played, which was that the president of the United States, the commander in chief of the United States armed forces, no less, uh, accused the Afghan national security forces of being cowards. He said, why would we fight for them if they won't fight? That was, I think, one of the most disgraceful statements I've ever heard from any president of the United States, certainly in my lifetime and in all the times I've been following what presidents have said. I've never heard anything like that. The, 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 these soldiers, Afghan soldiers, fought and died alongside American troops and alongside British troops. They, in the last seven years alone, 50,000 of them were killed fighting the Taliban. 50,000, that is two thirds of the size of the current British army fighting the Taliban were killed fighting. Now that is not cowards. Those, those, those soldiers that, that died fighting alongside um, British and American forces and other international forces, they were not cowards. They, they uh, were extremely brave men, but they were betrayed. They were let down by the American government, the British government, uh, other international governments who ripped the carpet out from under their feet who denied them the support they needed and who denied them the technological, the technical logistic support they required as well to keep fighting. Uh, but above all, they, 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 they tore their morale away. They no longer, no longer was the United States the guarantor of their success. And from the moment that President Biden decided he wasn't interested in fighting in Afghanistan anymore, that, was the, that sealed their fate, I think. They knew that it was the end and they, you know, morale is such an important factor in modern day combat that they, 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 they simply in some cases melted away. In other cases, they went over to the side of the Taliban because they were not only betrayed by us, they were also betrayed by their own government, which, um, which uh, often stole their money from them, didn't give them the equipment and even the food that they needed to fight. And, and, and it was, that was partly, I think, due to our lack of, uh, control of that government that we should have, I think, maintained. But in terms of the UK-US special relationship that you asked about, that relationship is vitally important. I don't think there's any other bilateral relationship in the world that's as important as that. We have fought alongside each other in every conflict since the First World War, with very few exceptions, Vietnam being one. Um, but even, you know, even coming up to date and, and more, more up to date in, in our our, our fight in the Falklands, which was an extremely important fight for Britain and for uh, for global security, the, the Americans were right beside us there. Without the American support, we could not have won that war. It's very simple. So that relationship is vitally important. It's essential. We do not allow it to crumble in any way. And I think that the, one of the dangers that we see now is that the British government, which was also complicit in President Biden's decision, I believe the British government uh, were very, very enthusiastic about leaving Afghanistan, despite what they've said. They recognise the political damage that's done to them, and they want to deflect that onto the United States. So they have blamed, basically shoved the blame onto President Biden, who also deserves it, but he doesn't deserve all of it. And I think that risks rupturing the special relationship. And I think there's many people over here who are deeply concerned about that. And any one of us, you know, who is in any position of influence should do everything we can, I think, to maintain relations between our two countries, particularly at this time when we we face such a, an enormous threat from countries like China and Russia from Iran and North Korea.
Let, let's stick on the specific thread of the, uh, the jihadi movement. You are a doubly uh, qualified not only as theater commander for British forces, but because of the job you had afterwards as you know, heading up the CT analysis uh, for the administration in Downing Street and understanding that threat. From that perspective of the surrender of Kabul, the sacrifice of Bagram, the pulling out of all troops uh, on the ground. What does that mean for the threat analysis, for the global jihadi movement, uh, the prestige, the renommé of the Taliban now? How, how much more dangerous are we, Richard, after that decision was taken prior, prior to, you know, in comparison to the, the situation before the decision? I think it's uh, the, the, the threats we face now in our, all of our countries are hugely greater than they were before we pulled out of Afghanistan. As I mentioned previously, we were, uh, we were there to prevent terrorism, to prevent Afghanistan becoming a global hub, again, for terrorist attacks along the lines of 9-11. We achieved that. That was a mission that was achieved by US forces and Britain and our allies. Um, now, uh, we have the Taliban in power. The Taliban, they pretend that they're changed. They pretend that they're now diverse and woke and whatever else you want to say about them. That's what they, the only, the only way they've changed is they've become more media savvy and they're now used to making statements that they think will please the West and appease the West and make the West uh, more sympathetic towards them. And, and, and indeed, that, that kind of um, narrative is being advanced on both sides of the Atlantic, where both of our governments are almost kind of saying, we, uh, we, we, you know, we're fighting the Islamic State alongside the Taliban. Nothing could be more for, far from the truth. The Taliban, are, are unlike what President Biden said, the Taliban are not the sworn enemies of the Islamic State. They sometimes fight and kill them. Yes, they do, but they sometimes cooperate. They cooperate with al-Qaeda as well. And the, Islam, the, the Taliban will allow the Islamic State to operate. They will allow the al-Qaeda to operate. Jihadists will flood into that country to join those organizations and other jihadist organizations as they did before 9-11. They will train, they will prepare, they will make contacts. They will launch attacks or attempt to launch attacks against the West from Afghanistan again. And that is a huge increased danger. The Taliban as well before 2001, were mainly focused internally on Afghanistan. Today, with younger members joining, with 20 years of experience fighting the West, they are externally focused. And some of the uh, statements that they've made since their victory in Kabul have indicated that, that they're looking for jihad globally, even the Taliban, not just al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. On top of that, this is the greatest victory that jihadists have achieved in modern times. I believe even greater than the other enormous victory in 1979 when Shia jihadists took over Iran and created an Iranian terrorist state. We now have next door an Afghan terrorist state again. And that victory inspires jihadists everywhere. It inspires jihadists in the UK and in the US. And it, not only that, it, it, it re-energizes their efforts. It gives them more funding and it gives them more recruits. So overall a massively increased threat faced by us that i hope our security organizations will succeed in preventing Sadly, hope is uh, not a strategy. We need uh, more people like you in positions uh, of influence. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, the ideological uh, aspect of all of this. Um, Richard, I, I spent years and years and years prior to joining the administration 
educating our warfighters in the intelligence community and law enforcement on understanding how the bad guys think. My job was to read the jihadi propaganda, read the Quran, and explain the motivations, what, what a caliphate means, what is jahaliya, what is the obligation to recreate a theocratic regime, whether you're Shia or whether you're Sunni. Today, shockingly... <laughs> Just recently, in an article in Politico, an advisor to the Democrats stated, this is this year, Richard, um, uh, I I underestimated the role of religion when it comes to the Taliban. I I, I am gobsmacked that we have people who 20 years after 9-11 still use their secular prism to misunderstand the war we are in. I have to ask you, if you're prepared to, is there a concomitant lack of understanding on the other side of, 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 the, uh, of the Atlantic? I, I, I saw Nick Carter, the equivalent of your you know, defense chief, give an interview recently where he said the Taliban could be legitimate and maybe inclusive. And I thought it was a, a Monty Python skit. This is a man in uniform making the Taliban sound like the government of Luxembourg. Are things as bad in the UK as they are over here? I think they are, and they have been for a long time. And I can remember when I was working um, for the Joint Intelligence Committee on International Terrorism in the Prime Minister's office, that even back then, and we're talking now back immediately after 9-11, even back then, there was people were worried about referring to Islamic terrorism or Islamist terrorism. They didn't want to link terrorism to a specific religion. And unfortunately, although, of course, we all know that every adherent to that religion certainly does not support terrorism that those who are involved in uh, terrorism in jihad are inspired and are following the strict letter of the law of the quran and other islamic religious doctrines and and it's you know it's it's a simple fact and uh, you know it's recognized by for example by the united arab emirates by the uh, that government there which which works extremely hard against their Muslim country, of course, and, you know, Islamic uh, government, and they work extremely hard against jihadists because they know the threat that they pose, not just to the West, but to their own countries. And there's pretty much no country in the world which Islamic jihadists like Al-Qaeda, like the Taliban, like um, Islamic State, like Hamas, and numerous other jihadists around the world. There's virtually no country in the world that they recognize as being a true Islamic country. They are as much enemies of Saudi Arabia, of Kuwait, of the UAE, as they are of the United States and Britain. And they want to impose their specific doctrine, their fundamentalist Islamic doctrine on us all. And they will not rest until they do. They will not be reasonable. They will not uh, reform. They will not change their ways. Um, No matter what we may hope, the fact that we don't understand it and many of our leaders can't kind of they can't comprehend that kind of religious fervor that that doesn't affect the reality of what they're going to do and what they're planning to do. Nothing we can do will change it. The only way, in my view, to really um, to convert somebody from being a, a, a jihadist terrorist is to put a bullet in their head. That's pretty much the only thing you can do to stop that fervor. Yes, um, when they believe that they will not only save their own souls, but will vouchsafe the salvation of their loved ones. If they die trying to kill an infidel, there's no negotiating. And this is something that sadly, it seems, 
in the last 20 years, people have not understood, especially those in our secular, quote-unquote, elites. We're talking to Richard Kemp. He is the author, Colonel Kemp and uh, Chris Hughes, of Attack State Red. Uh, follow him at richard-kemp.com. He is a truth-teller, just like another good friend of the show, America's Mayor Rudy Giuliani. They are trying to not only cancel him, they're trying to destroy America's Mayor. They're trying to strip him of his law licenses, bankrupt him, and get him in a dock on some spurious charge. Please support the man who did so much, not only for New York in the 1980s, but after the September the 11th attacks and is still speaking the truth today. Please go to RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. Make a donation today so Rudy can keep fighting for the truth. That's RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. He's done so much for us. It's now our turn to support him. RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. Richard, you mentioned... um, this lack of understanding being uh, a mutual one across both sides of the Atlantic. We've witnessed this unbelievable uh, scandal with the most senior uh, individual in uniform here in the United States, uh, Mark Milley, who in testifying on Capitol Hill said, white rage has to be understood. I'm white. Critical race theory should be taught at West Point. How much of our national security environment, our strategic situation, isn't just a function of revivified enemies, uh, emboldened uh, adversaries, but the fact that we seem above a certain rank to have a politically correct general officer corps. I, I, when, when I was in the British military in the Territorial Army, I was surrounded. That, you know, there was no white rage. One of my squad members was a Jamaican. There wasn't nationalism rampant. We looked at the world realistically. Today, it seems as if you have to have a political pair of goggles above the rank of colonel in the United States. How worried are you that we've lost the, the Ajax spirit in our, in our warfighters, or at least the senior warfighters? I think it's very concerning that we have that, uh, that situation both sides of the Atlantic. And, um, you know, the, in, in many ways, you know, when you, when you see statements made by some senior officers here in the UK... You, you believe perhaps that their priority is in somehow contributing to preventing climate change or, uh, you know, social engineering, um, uh, being woke. You, you, that seems to be their priority above actually what their business is, which is killing the Queen's enemies uh, or being prepared to do so. And one of, the, one of the concerns that I have about all this, obviously the way that it affects our uh, combat effectiveness in in the British forces, and I'm, it must do, if, unless you're single-mindedly um, focused on your your military mission, your military task, then it's going to be negative effect on your forces. But um, one thing that really does worry me is is how our enemies see this. You can imagine the laughter and the guffaws and the chuckling in Beijing, in Moscow, in Tehran, and various other centers of uh, authoritarianism that you know they find it highly amusing i think and they they're, they're, they're rubbing their hands together because they see in that weakness and the, one of the most important functions of an armed force any armed force in any country is not i mean one of the most one of the functions is fighting and killing the enemy but an equally perhaps even more important function is deterring deterring your enemies 
convincing them that it's not worth going in for the fight, otherwise they're going to lose. Well, I don't see much of that, that thought about how wokeism in the forces, how that might possibly impact upon our deterrent capabilities. I know it, well, how it impacts. It, it really reduces them. And, and this sort of thinking really does make war far more likely. We're all, we're all very keen to avoid it. But, you know, the, perhaps it's not understood among many, many of the military hierarchies that their approach, their woke approach, where it exists, and it doesn't exist in all of them. I know plenty of generals who think the same way as I do about it. But uh, among some, some generals, they, they, they're obsessed with wokeism, and it's all to do with advancement and, you know, careers after the army, etc., more than anything else. But it is seriously damaging to our national defences. Can I ask you, without a recourse to any political adjectives, just purely as a strategic assessment, would you rate uh, the national security um, performance of the last commander-in-chief, my old boss, President Trump, and then the last uh, nine months of his uh, successor, purely from a national strategic perspective, as a, a Brit as part of that special relationship? Well, I don't. I don't. I know there was huge criticism of President Trump over here in the United Kingdom uh, for many, many different reasons. You know, President Obama remains the patron saint of Great Britain, and President Trump remains the great uh, evil in this country, among so many people. But I think if you do look at it in pure national security terms, there was never any of the fear of um, weakening the United States of America. Of, of the danger to our special relationship between our two countries, even of the, the, the dangers to NATO, despite President Trump's r quite right criticism of NATO. There was never any of that when Trump was the president. I think one of the greatest strengths he had um, was, was his unpredictability. And of course, being unpredictable is very disconcerting for your enemies. And I think his enemies would have been I know his enemies, from what I understand of it, were, were extremely worried about the fact they didn't really know how he would respond to certain things and therefore didn't dare do certain things. We just need to look at how he responded to uh, Qasim Soleimani, you know, the greatest terrorist the world's probably ever known, the most dangerous operative um, in the world in his day. He was then eliminated by President Trump, where previous US presidents had the opportunity but never grasped the nettle and decided to do away with him. As a result of his death, the world's a much safer place. And, of course, President Trump had many other uh, achievements in international security. I do not believe, I, I know that he, uh, he also wished to pull out of Afghanistan. I think he was mistaken in his, his wish to do that. But he at least, um, unlike President Biden, attached specific conditions to that. I do not believe myself that had... President Trump and President, we would have seen the utter humiliation of the United States and the West, including Great Britain, that we've seen now. You mentioned the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, Colonel Kemp. Uh, is, is, is it fit for purpose right now? I think, I think the NATO has been shown to be the opposite of that. And, you know, our own Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, here in the UK, when he uh, re recognized that the US was pulling out of Afghanistan, he claims to have made calls to all of the other NATO countries to, uh, to suggest a British-led coalition to remain in Afghanistan made up of NATO members, excluding the US because the US was pulling out. 
And he says that not one single country in NATO was interested. Not one agreed to, to the concept. That doesn't surprise me. I'm sure it didn't surprise him. I'm certain that when he, if he made those calls, which he says he did, so I'm assuming that he did, he did so knowing the answer would be no, because as I mentioned before, I think Britain wants to be out of wanted to be out of Afghanistan just as much as President Biden did. But but that what that shows is that NATO is the United States of America. The rest of it is window dressing, including Britain. Britain begged begged President Biden to extend the term of the evacuation so we could get all our national citizens out and get people he wanted to protect from Afghanistan who'd served us so well over the campaign to get them out as well. We begged him to do that, apparently. Um, but why couldn't we do it ourselves? We're, we're, we're something like the fifth most powerful military nation in the world, something like that. We, we spend a huge amount of our money on defence, but we couldn't even defend a small airport in Afghanistan on our own for long enough to get our people out. Now, when you hear that, and I'm not sure if it's a question of capability, I think more likely it's a question of willpower on the part of our politicians. But when you hear that sort of thing, you do wonder um, what we're spending all our defence money on, because it certainly isn't having the capability to to do even a small task like defend a relatively small airport. And I think that goes for all the other NATO countries. So, yeah, I think I think we need to be seriously worried about NATO. But at the same time, we need to be just as concerned about that relationship as we are about our own US-UK relationship, because NATO is an extremely important organisation. It does need to be reformed. It does need to be regenerated. But we can't afford to see it fractured, especially in the face of the increased terrorist threat we face and the other threats I already mentioned around the world. You mentioned the... uh the calculus of warfare it's not capabilities alone it is the will to fight and those with very very meager means can be the deadliest of enemies if they have uh, inordinate will to destroy you sun tzu is <laughs> so oftenly misquoted that all you need to say is oh know your enemy and you'll will you'll win wrong he said if you know the enemy uh, you'll win half of your battles uh, if you want to win you have to know yourself and why you're fighting plus the enemy and and th- this is my big question for you uh, colonel does the west after having won the Cold War without one shot being fired across Checkpoint Charlie on November the 9th, 1989. Do we know what we are fighting for? Is it possible to win wars with any enemy if we don't embrace our Judeo-Christian heritage? Talk to us about Sun Tzu's equation and and where we are today. Well, I think... um... I think we're in a very precarious situation today. And, you know, we are now, both of our countries and other countries in Europe as well, are self-hating people. Uh, And and I don't say it applies to everyone because there are still some people in our countries with quite a lot of common sense, but there are a lot without any common sense. And they, uh, you know, they want nothing more than to despise our country and its history and its achievements. And all I have to do, you know, occasionally and and often deliberately, provocatively, make a tweet about Winston Churchill. And you guarantee (laughs) you will get you will get a torrent of abuse and accusations of Churchill as being a war criminal, of being racist, of 
creating some genocide somewhere and all of that. I mean, Churchill was one of the greatest, probably probably the great. He's often been voted the greatest Briton. He certainly well, was. Come on, Richard. He, he saved the West. Can we at least say he, that about him? <laughs> he saved the West. He's He was probably one of the greatest leaders the world's ever seen, if not the greatest. And and um you know yet yet we many people in our country want to rip him down want to tear his statues down they want to rip nelson from the top of his column this is this is all self-destructive self-loathing nonsense and it's been created by 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 communists in effect uh, it, the the whole movement that that results today in wokeism in europe and in the us was commenced by russia many many years ago uh, and has been has been continued in through various different guises among various different organizations, including human rights groups, universities, the United Nations, um, numerous other bodies around the world. Uh, and, and, and now hugely fueled by China to, 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 to basically tear our countries apart and render us impotent. And I think that's, that's where we are today. And you know, we do need people to fight back. We we do need um, we do need to try and rid ourselves of this huge infection that's upon us. Uh, without it, you know, it doesn't matter how much military capability, military power you have, you 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 can't achieve it. You've got to have you've got to have a combination of military capability and the political will to use it. And and you know, I, I, I'm very very concerned about any political will in the U.S. But even more so, I think I think the U.S. political will. Is, is a function at the moment of the current administration. And hopefully, once you manage to get rid of this current administration, you will have something much more robust in its place. But in Europe, I'm afraid it's very hard to see that happening. I think, you know, pretty much any current administration and potential future administration, particularly in Western Europe, uh, is so badly infected that it's really hard to see us ever recovering from the state we've got ourselves into now. He's the author of Attack State Red. Follow him at richard-kemp.com and on Twitter at Colonel, C-O-L, Colonel Richard Kemp. Uh, last question uh, to you, uh, Richard. What is, what is your message to, to your American colleagues in uniform? And even because we have listeners across the globe from Australia to the UK, what is your message to your, your fellow warfighters who bled and who were maybe maimed in Afghanistan after the recent events of the last five weeks? What, what, is there something you'd like to say to them? Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, the first thing is, is I have, I mentioned already, I have the most profound respect for US armed forces and for the armed forces of our allies who fought with us in Afghanistan, even even as a Brit, the French. And I, I say that, <laughs> but, uh, but I served alongside the French in, in Kabul, very impressive soldiers held back by their own government. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I, what, the thing I would say uh, to and about them is that um, contrary to what you hear so much about how their sacrifices in terms of the, the you know, the, the, the hardships they experienced in Afghanistan, the severe life-changing wounds that so many experienced and the greatest sacrifice, those who were killed in action in Afghanistan. Um, none of it was in vain, in my opinion. I, th I know a lot of people have a different view. In my view, none of it was in vain. We were all fighting and dying in some cases, unfortunately, uh, to protect our people at home from this threat of global jihad. And we succeeded in that mission in Afghanistan until 
we were betrayed effectively by the United States president and the other allied governments who also pulled out when he did. Um, but, in, in the, you know, it's a very hard thing to say, but in the same way as our forefathers were killed on the beaches of Normandy to defend our way of life, to protect our people from the evils of Nazism, our soldiers who died on the, in the deserts and the mountains and the plains of Afghanistan, they did so to protect people back home. And the ones that were killed were killed fighting to prevent the deaths of people back in the United States, back in the UK, etc. And 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 I, I'm certain that many lives were saved in our countries as a result of the sacrifices made by our soldiers. So I, I firmly believe that. And I think above all, I would like to give that message, not just to the soldiers who fought, but particularly, I think, to the families of those who were were killed, who made the ultimate sacrifice, who gave more than than anyone else could ever give in for their country. They died, they gave their life, they gave everything they ever had, everything they ever would have had in, uh, in, in sacrificing their lives for their country. And I think their families should be uh, not only confident that it was not in vain, but also they should be deeply proud of them. They gave the last full measure of devotion. Thank you for those words, uh, Colonel Richard Kemp. And, and thank you, not, not uh, solely for your service to the UK, but also to the special relationship between uh, our two countries that are so closely bonded. And, and, and since then, since uh, demobbing, um, being a truth teller, I mean, truly one of the most extraordinary truth tellers out there. God bless you, uh, Richard. You've been listening to America First one-on-one with Colonel Richard Kemp. Follow him, check out his website, read his books. I'm Sebastian Gorka. Keep your head on a swivel, watch your six, hold the line, never give up, never give in, and stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.